If you have your Bibles, can I invite you to turn to Haggai? Haggai chapter 2, and Jen Manley's going to come and read for us this morning. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of all the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Thank you so much for reading. As I read the Bible more and more, I've really grown to appreciate the fact that the Bible often presents ordinary people at significant crossroads in their life. Sometimes it's not just individuals. Sometimes it's a whole group of people. Sometimes it's an entire nation. But regularly, you read the Bible and you see people are at a place where they could go down two or more different paths. And the directions they go will will lead them to very different destinations. And I appreciate that because that is often how I feel like my life is. Sometimes it's big crossroads where there's big things at stake. Sometimes it's just smaller decisions that have to be made. But you get a picture that I could go down this path or that path. And these paths have significantly different endpoints, significantly different destinations. One of the books of the Bible, and we've been looking at it the last few weeks, if this is your first week joining us, we've, we've looked several weeks at the book of Haggai and how it presents God's people at a crossroads. By the end of Haggai chapter 1, just by way of a simple review, by the end of chapter 1 in Haggai, you have God's people, actually about 40,000 of them, scholars would tell us uh, that the estimates are about 40,000, have moved from Babylon and have resettled into Jerusalem or at least uh, like the surrounding area. So they've, they've resettled, they come back home to their native land. And, and chapter one of Haggai also tells the story of God's people being remotivated to rebuild a temple that had been just left in, in destruction. So that, that's the story of Haggai one. And the book would actually have a very happy ending if it just ended in chapter one, if it was just one chapter and that was the prophecy of Haggai. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with just, and they rebuilt the temple. And that's all there is to say about that. Haggai has more to say. There's more prophecy. God is speaking more to his people. He's, he's still speaking to them. And, 
And I think he's still speaking to them because they are still at a crossroads. Yes, they've rebuilt the temple. We talked about that last week, but they're still at a place where they could go down some very, very different paths. And God speaks and he addresses them. And sometimes I think it's really, really helpful, especially especially in some of these stories that are less familiar, to really like set ourselves in those stories, to try to at least imagine, like, I wonder what it would feel like to be them. I wonder what it would be like. I wonder what they were thinking. I wonder what they were feeling. I wonder, as they looked at the landscape of everything, how they were processing it all. And I think as we do that in this passage, I think what will happen is we will also find some corresponding things in our own lives, or maybe in the life of a friend or family member, in which this will have some resonance. So what would be going through their mind after they built this temple, after it was rebuilt? Well, we get, actually get a glimpse, and we don't necessarily even have to use our imagination at first, because verse 3 of Haggai 2, what, what Jen read a moment ago, there's a question that God asked of the people through Haggai. So the question is this in verse 3, He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So you can imagine, okay, what is that talking about? Well, there were surely some older people, probably not a lot, but surely there were some that had seen the previous temple before it was destroyed. And that temple was the one Solomon built. That was the one like spare no expense. That was the one that had all the embellishments and all the ornate detail, all the gold, all the silver, and that was spectacular. And now they don't have those kind of resources at their disposal. Or maybe they just heard like their grandparents talk about, oh, you should have seen the temple. Yeah, it's not there anymore, but it it was amazing. Or maybe they heard their parents talk about it. But now they have this temple that actually probably wasn't that impressive. Probably didn't seem that glorious. Surely, some of them at least had to think, maybe the best days of our nation, maybe the best days of our family are actually in the past. And maybe the present doesn't really have much to offer. And maybe the future doesn't either. I wonder if they looked around and recognized, kind of added to that, that the world in which they were living, I mean, so they rebuilt that temple, but who's to say another, another nation could just come in and destroy it anyway? And there were the Assyrians, and then the Egyptians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Medes, and the Persians. I mean, and this is the Middle East we're talking about, where there's, it seems like there's never been peace. So surely they wonder, like, okay, so we rebuild it. Like, what now? What next? And I have to wonder, too, did they, did they sense, even in the rebuilding process, yeah, God met them. But, I mean, they're rebuilding only after, only after decades of rebellion of their people. So all of their family stories would have some taste of God's judgment that they experienced. As they came back, they probably had learned to ask the hard questions of God, like, Lord, why have you forsaken me? How long is this going to go on? Why are you hiding your face from me? So so you process all that and you realize their condition, even after rebuilding the temple, 
surely there could be questions remaining. Surely they could be asking, so we've rebuilt this, what's next? Where is all this going? They might be looking at their life, going, where is all this going? I mean, what's the next thing on the horizon? What is the next three months, six months, what does the next two decades look like? Does it even matter? Does it matter that we rebuilt the temple? Is it that important? If those people were anything like me, there are times where you kind of get out of the rat race long enough to just think about some questions like, what's going on with your life? And where is it all going? Where is everything going with the family or the friends that God has given you? Where, is, where are things going with the education you're pursuing? What will that mean in decades? What about the career that you're investing time in? What, is, what does that all mean? What, what is the meaning of that? What about where you're living? What about the things that you're enjoying? What about the things that get you out of bed in the morning? I mean, what, what will become of those in a year or two or five or ten? What's it going to look like? And as the people had begun the rebuilding process, and maybe they were processing some of those questions like, what next, what now? God speaks. God has more to say to them. I appreciate it that God isn't like, okay, we got the temple rebuilt. Now I'm going to move on to some people in Africa or Europe, or maybe there's something else going on in Asia. I've got other things to attend to, but good job on the temple rebuilt. God directs his attention to them and speaks to them. He speaks to them, and I believe he could be speaking to people who also find themselves at a crossroad, maybe, maybe sensing God's been distant from my life for a while, maybe sensing like this world seems chaotic and out of control. Maybe you're sensing the best days of my life might, might be in the past. Maybe you're sensing even like my present and my future. Yeah, they're not looking so good. God had a word for them and God, I believe God has a word for us. I want us to see how our heavenly father comes to meet us in this, meet us in those questions and help us because we don't always see it. Sometimes we're, we don't see God at work because we're not looking for him. Sometimes we're just looking for other things. We're looking for God to take our mess and like immediately remedy it. Like, that'd be okay. God, I got financial problems. So in some ways, if you could just wire some money and put it in my account and it'll all be better. Or God, this situation is out of control. So if you would just let me control that person a little bit, just for a little bit, then I could just kind of whip this all into shape and life would be so much better. God, that's what I need. That's what I'm asking. But I find, and I'm sure you found this as well, God will always be much more than a, some sort of genie granting wishes. So as God walks you through a crossroads in your life, God has this way of stripping away your, your shallow faith. I mean, we've, we've probably all come to church and pretended at points like we were stronger believers than we really are. God has a way of ripping that down. God has a way of dealing with us when we're just kind of casually going through emotions. God has a way of dealing with faith that is faith in name only. God has a way of pulling all that back. And on the other side, God will take us through and walk us even as we're at this crossroads and 
And as we listen and as we learn from him, God has a way uh, of deepening our relationship on the other side, deepening our faith on the other side. And what God, do, what God does when we find ourselves at a crossroad, I, w- I want to try to at least like, learn from this passage and not overcomplicate things. So I think we can start with the fact that one thing God does when we're at this crossroads is God gives just some simple instructions. God gives them, and I think he God gives us some simple instructions when we're at a crossroads. I said simple. I didn't say easy. Because often what God tells us to do is not that easy. But, but I love in this passage, and you'll notice kind of the imperatives that God speaks. And so three times he speaks to Zerubbabel, and he speaks to Joshua, and he speaks to the whole people. And he says to them what? He tells them to be strong. He says it three times. A simple instruction. They're, they're looking at this temple, and it doesn't look quite great, and they're wondering, what's next? And he says, this is what's next. Be strong. And then he gives them another command in, in verse 5. He says, work. Go to work. Continue this rebuilding effort of your nation and of your people and of your city. And then at the end, in verse 5, he says, don't be afraid, fear not. Again, I won't pretend these things are easy, but they actually are simple. And they might have all the effect of like cold, hard commands if it weren't for the character of God and the commitment he has to us. Yet to obey commands like don't be afraid and be strong, you have to have such a high degree of trust. And often I just don't, I don't have that. And that's why I need to hear from the Lord some simple commands. As I think of the Bible... I think of the Bible is filled with simple commands, isn't it? As you go through the pages of the Bible, and I just jotted a few down so the Bible would tell us, God's word would tell us to fight the good fight of faith. The Bible would tell us, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Walk in the Spirit. Set your affections on things that are above. Lay up treasure in heaven. Guard your heart. Pray without stopping. Flee sexual immorality. Endure suffering. Don't be afraid. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher, the completer of your faith. And I guess we could hear all those commands and say, yeah, but I mean, those are just Sunday school answers. I'm dealing with like real life. I think the voice back from God would say, yeah. Yeah, you're dealing with real life. And I'm telling you the next thing you need to do, the next step you need to take. And and I know there's a way this could be simplistic. But I think there's also a way we could look at this as our Heavenly Father reminding us of this, that next thing that He's calling on us to do. I think of a a parent trying to teach their kid to ride a bike. And so I can imagine, like, you're getting ready to teach them to do this, and you tell them, okay, this is what you need to remember. You need to, like, you're going to have to pedal. But then also don't forget where the brake is, because that's very, very important. And as you're pedaling and as you remember where the brake is, make make sure you steer. Make sure you turn if you need to. 
And I would imagine as a kid, the first time you hop on a bike, you think, this is overwhelming. And yet you hear the voice of a parent saying, it's simple and you can do this. You can do this. I'm, I, I, I'm with you. I'm right here. I think of all the commands in Scripture, and many of them actually are fairly simple. Do we hear those? Do we hear God speaking to us? What I find most interesting about this passage, though, is that words like be strong and work and don't be afraid are embedded in God's promises. So alongside the fact that God is telling them to do stuff, also God is rehearsing his promises. God is rehearsing his promises. So look at the verses. I mean, we just read this set of verses and, and we highlighted be strong and work and fear not. But, but notice what else God is saying. So he does tell him be strong, but he says, As, yes, you can be strong because, because I am with you. Yes, you can go to work. You can wake up every day because I am present with you. Yes, you can not be afraid because I, my spirit remains in your midst. And they rebuilt the temple, but the whole point of the temple was to remind them that God is present with his people. That was what the temple was about all along. I love how God, in the midst of telling us of things we need to do, embeds those in promises. Promises like, I'm with you. Promises like, I made a covenant with you. Promises like, my spirit is going to remain with you. Our spiritual survival depends on us rehearsing those promises. Reminding ourselves again and again of things like Isaiah 41, 41.10, where God says, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or promises like Isaiah 43. This is what the Lord says. Don't fear. Because I've redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You are mine. I'll be with you when you pass through the waters. I'll be with you when you pass through the rivers. They won't overwhelm you. You won't be scorched when you walk through the fire. The flame won't burn you. I'm with you. And if it wasn't enough for God just to tell us he's with us and his spirit remains, he says, I'm with you according to the covenant I made. That covenant now is centuries old. And yet God says, I made a covenant with your ancestors and I made a covenant with you. And I I knew you would be in this situation and I will be faithful to my covenant. When you hear the word covenant, maybe you're new to church, new to the Bible, and you go, "What, what exactly does a covenant mean, especially when God initiates it, when God makes it? This binding promise that God makes to people. This binding promise. And instead of like sealing that promise with like a handshake saying I'm serious about it. Or some signature on a contract. The way God tells us he's serious about keeping this promise, keeping this covenant. This new covenant that he makes with his people. As he sends his own son. Who sheds blood and says... The blood I shed is blood of a new covenant. That's why in a passage like Romans 8, 
Paul can say, if God didn't hold back his own son, he's very serious about this covenant. Nothing's going to separate you from his love. Or Peter can say, if Jesus died so that the unjust could be made just, so that he might bring us to God, well, then you, once who did not have a spiritual identity, you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but God in his mercy has has shown that and shown it again and again. He's serious about this covenant. That's why in Hebrews, which talks a lot about God's covenant and the new covenant that God makes, that's why when, when Jesus seals this covenant with his death, the writer of Hebrews could say, we have a great high priest and he's not one that can't really relate to what we feel like or isn't touched by our weakness. No, no. In every point, he feels our weakness. And, and that's, since we have this great high priest, we can go boldly to God's throne, the throne of grace, and we can find help because we know, we know we have this high priest who has like, sealed this covenant and he won't go back on it. God rests everything on his covenant faithfulness. So sure, sure, God tells us when we're at that crossroads, he tells us here's what the next thing or things you need to do. But also at that crossroads, God rehearses his promises. God embeds those commands in his promises. But then God does one other thing in the book of Haggai that I think is so important. And that is God takes the people of Israel and he points them to the future. Because they're looking at a temple going, what's next? And Haggai, being the mouthpiece of the Lord, says there's something more than that building in Jerusalem. Listen, listen, to, how, listen to how he says it. He says that once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land there's something future. I will shake the nations and the treasures of all the nations will come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And even in verse 9, he says, the latter glory of this house is going to be greater than the former. God points people to the future. The Bible is not just a book that helps us in the present. It is. The Bible is not just a, a book that helps us with relevance immediately. It does that. It is so relevant to where we live. But the Bible also points us to saying 2018, August, this isn't all there is. This semester in front of you, that's not all there is. The next decade in front of you, that's not all there is. And points us to something very much in the future. God always has a way of doing that. For some, this is why they have such a struggle even believing the Bible, believing Christianity, because it's like, no, I got to see things in front of me. I only believe what I can just kind of observe that's right in front of me. I'll tell you, frankly, I don't think you can sustain that kind of thinking for your whole life. But I do know you're right if you understand that Jesus gave us something that isn't just all about right here and right now. God stabilizes his people by giving them hope. They're looking at a temple going, ah, it just isn't that great. And God, who lives in eternity, so his perspective is interesting on this. He says, in a little while, in a little while, there's going to be something very, very different. The subject of a lot of the verbs and the sentences of Haggai 2, the subject is God. God says, I will shake the nations. I will give peace. I will bless. 
I will overthrow. Imagine hearing that as the people of Israel, that God hasn't just, like, okay, they built the temple, and now God's going to go on to other things, but God is going to be actively directing, shaping what's going to happen to them, not as a spectator, but by the primary actor. God says, this thing in the future that I am shaping, yeah, it's going to be greater than any temple you've seen. There's something better coming, something greater that, that, that you may not be able to process. I think over and over again in Scripture, we're reminded, sometimes we make this earth like we really think of it as home, and sometimes God jostles us from that and says, wait a minute, this isn't your home. It's not going to be perfect, even as nice as things are. Or we, we want this world to be perfect, and, and even if we're loving everything in our life, something, something could change that tonight. God says, I have something far, far greater. Something greater that you're not going to be able to build with hands. You're not going to be able to go, look what I did. God says, I'm at work. He speaks of hope and he speaks of the future and he speaks of that temple that's going to be filled with glory. But as many times as I've read Haggai in the last few weeks, I'm all, what always stands out to me is how this book actually finishes. If you still have your Bibles, look at Haggai chapter 2 and verse 20. It's like the whole book is about rebuilding the temple. And then it seems like it hits some of those themes, but then changes. Look at the last word. So on this day, there were two prophecies on, on this 24th day of the month. The word of the Lord comes a second time to Haggai, and, and he says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Well, that's different in that normally it speaks to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people, but now it says, No, no. Speak to him and tell him, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. But then notice these last words of this prophecy. No longer are we talking about the temple. On this day, it's like the spotlight now goes from the temple that's getting rebuilt and zeroes in directly on Zerubbabel. And on this day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant the son of Shealtiel. I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord, declares the Lord of hosts. It's interesting because temple, 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 rebuilt, glorious temple, and now we have Zerubbabel. What's going on there? The prophecy changes from a building to a person. And God's plan changes from this temple that he'll fill with glory to a person. What's interesting as you read about this era of Zerubbabel's life, it's like there isn't a glorious temple. You're kind of like, what did that prophecy mean if God was singling out this one individual? As a matter of fact, the next time you really come across Zerubbabel is not in the Old Testament, but actually in the New Testament. And in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, 
you're reading through a bunch of ancestors of Jesus and right in, in between David and Jesus, there's this ancestor named Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Matthew 1 and Luke 3 are trying to tell a story that Jesus comes and he's, he's the son of David. He has the right to go to the throne because he's the son of David. And part of the critical link between Jesus and David is this man that God made all sorts of promises to. It reminds us, even at the end of the book, this whole book wasn't necessarily about a building. Could it be pointing us? Could Haggai have got a little glimpse into something greater, some greater ancestor of David? And then we hear it a little bit differently when God says, I'm going to take you, Zerubbabel, and you are going to be my signet. You're going to bear my impression. You're going to represent me with all my authority and honor. And you're going to be my servant because I've chosen you. I wish we had time to trace every connection. But what stands out to me is when God switches between this building and says, actually, let's focus on this descendant of David. I think it's an invitation for us to look through that descendant of David and see the greatest descendant of David ever, Jesus Christ. And say, one day, one day, I'll fill this temple with glory. So interesting to me when I read the story of Jesus, how often he intersected with people in the temple. How he just shook things up in the temple. It's, it's interesting to me that Jesus would even talk about, you, know, you can tear down this temple, speaking of his body, but I'll build it back in three days. It's interesting the connections that Jesus made again and again. Literally, even Jesus' death caused an earthquake. So the temple was shaking. And the curtain was torn. He rose from the dead. And in that, Jesus opened up access to God. She began to think through, okay, so this book is more than just noting a rebuilding effort in ancient Israel. This book is to tell them there's a person coming. There's a person coming who's going to make things glorious and build your hope, not just on getting this temple rebuilt of your own, but build your hope on this promise God made of a person coming. I love the way the Bible closes out, and this is the way we'll close out too, because it connects again the person and the temple in Revelation 21, 22. So John could see out into the future and says, I saw no temple in that city. For its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city didn't actually need sun or moon to shine on it. And I hear the words of Haggai, because the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. I think Haggai got a glimpse of something much greater, something eternal, something that comes because of Jesus. And we just sang about it a moment ago. And so we wait. We wait for you. We wait because you're coming soon. We wait. We pinned our hopes on Jesus coming back. And God's people are stabilized by that hope that we have in the future. You find yourself at a crossroads. Hear God give you those simple instructions. See that how those instructions are embedded in promises, but don't lose hope.
that God has something far greater because of a person that made all the difference. That's Jesus Christ. Can I ask you to bow your head? If you find yourself at a crossroads and you kind of just need to talk to someone about it, we'd love to talk more. If you can resonate with a lot of the failure of Haggai and you're not seeing a lot of hope, we'd love to have a conversation with you about that. There will be people available after our service to talk with you. What I pray is that our, our church's heart would be one filled with hope. Lord, so that's what we ask. Lord, we ask that you would give us a glimpse of the future. Not so much that we're playing make-believe, but because you've, you've sealed these promises with your blood. You've guaranteed this covenant. And so, God, we do wait. And I pray that we'd be faithful in our waiting. And I pray for the person that is at crossroads that maybe even thinks they don't have a lot of hope. Surprise them today, Lord. Surprise them with hope that they were not aware of. Give them peace and remind them that you are a God that cares. Lord, do this as only you can. We thank you that you are a rock and our refuge, so we, we run to you and ask for your help this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.